You're listening to the Meditation and Attachment Podcast with George Haas. For more information, please visit our website at www.metagroup.org. That's www.m-e-t-t-a-g-r-o-u-p.org. So welcome everybody. It's uh, November 12, 2020 at 7.35 p.m. Pacific time. And this is uh, Meditation and Attachment, Deepening Your Practice. And we've been talking about Vipassana meditation for the last uh, few weeks. We'll continue with that. I've been talking about it uh, in relationship to the uh, Mahasi Sayadaw Progress of Insight, which is his commentary on the Vasudhimaga and the Theravada path to enlightenment. We talked about the basics of developing sensory clarity, understanding the nature of mind as it's related uh, to the five senses, the pure sensing form of uh, say, we're talking about the eye, light and form, and then mind making it into something. So you see light and form, and then the mind makes it into a chair or a table or a lamp or whatever it is that you're looking at. And taking this understanding of the basic sensing experience and then begin to examine uh, the experience of self and world, touching into the nature of the self activity, not a solid, ongoing, continuous, unchanging experience, an intrinsic self that exists inside of you somewhere but a reaction of sensing experience that produces uh, the uh, activity of self. And that uh, tends to take on this I am-ness, this I am doing this, I am controlling this, I am owning this, this is mine. And then beginning to see that it actually arises based on conditioning and it arises based on the context or the conditions of the present moment and that each arising of the sense of self, because it is based on the conditions of the present moment, is different from other arisings of self, and that it isn't intrinsic or constant or ongoing, but that it arises and passes like all other uh, phenomena, which points us to the um, reflection on impermanence, that both uh, in a large sense and in a small sense, in a macro sense and a micro sense, everything is constantly changing. Uh, Sometimes, uh, uh, well, I just remembered at this moment, uh, the first Vipassana class I went to in 92, um, Katriana Reed saying, the only constant is change. Uh, So that that, you have that sense of that flow, that movement, that constant changing that happens. And yet at the same time, we remain in the experience of the present moment, that this sense of time is a construction that helps us organize that, the past, the future. We don't experience the past in the past. We experience it in the present moment. We don't experience the future. We experience the future in the present moment. And then the last consideration there is uh, suffering or unsatisfactoriness or reactivity. 
three levels of that on the first level. You have this life that you're living in a human body, which is subject to birth and death, to growing old and getting sick. And there's nothing that you can do about that. And then everything arises and passes, everything changes, nothing is permanent, you can't hold on to anything. That's the another aspect of that suffering. You try to cling to something and it doesn't last, and so you suffer. So even if you get what you want, it doesn't last, or sometimes you don't get what you want, or sometimes you have to put up with things that you don't want. And then the last is a kind of subtle, constant irritation that nothing is actually the way that you would have it if you were in control of anything. And so we begin to examine these, mainly at this point from the idea of how we might think of that differently. Do we think that the, the sense of self that we have and experience in this moment is the same one that we experienced when we were a child? Um, I hear echoes all of the time of uh, people don't change, people are incapable of changing. I uh, had a, a friend who was a um, Lebanese, they lived in Beirut. And uh, there was a big emphasis on staying the same, staying true, staying faithful. And so one of the great insults uh, uh, that you could hurl at somebody was, you've changed. <clears throat> and, and that's so contrary to the nature of everything. There was a piece in the paper this morning about how very different people are from their younger self to their older self. Um, how all of that life, all of that conditioning affects uh, the perception of self and perception of world and that you can be a very different, almost unrecognizable person from your early life to your later life. So in the beginning of this uh, exploration, we're really looking at the ways in which we hold tightly to this, that we grip onto it so that we can feel a sense of security in knowing that this is us that we can feel a sense of security in knowing that we can set up our lives in such a way that they won't change so that they become unrecognizable to us. Uh, and that we have this idea that we can get what we want and in getting what we want, there'll be a sense of satisfaction in that. And what we want to begin to do is open up to see how tightly gripped we are onto this idea of a solid self that that you can protect yourself and prevent yourself from changing or aging or dying when you do this in a meditation practice of course you're paying attention to these in vipassana we divide everything up and look at the individual strands that come together into this tapestry that that creates the perception of ourselves and the world as a, a solid thing Um, we notice the sensing experience and often in the beginning of practice, we're able to notice it only as these fixated things, these 
solid things, we don't notice that they come from this undifferentiated, unfixated place. And then we attach to them and create this solidness, this perception of solidness. And as you touch into that and focus more and more on, uh, on that becoming conceptual reality uh, experience, what you begin to notice is that there's a lot of energy in the sensing process and that it's largely unfixated. And so you move into this next um, place of focus in practice, which is on the nature of impermanence. Um, Shinzen, my uh, longtime teacher in the Vipassana, uh, in Vipassana and in the Theravada uh, meditation uh, strategies, uh, calls it flow. So the energy of unfixated uh, time and space, sensing experience, just flowing a kind of vibratory energy. And so we begin to turn toward that and intentionally look for that uh, activity of, uh, of uh, impermanence and um, make that the object of meditation and then allow it to begin to dissolve the perception of solidness that we may have so we can move into this um, uh, uh, capacity really, or this ability to fixate things when we need them to be solid and, and then not fixate them when we don't need them to be solid. This movement between uh, fixating and unfixating, the move between manifesting a brilliant sense of self and, and not and allowing that sense of self to dissolve really seeing clearly that it's this attachment that we make to the undifferentiated sensing experience which causes the perception of solid self and solid world and that they're constantly changing based on uh, the conditions of the present moment, what's there and what causes them to arise. So we just have this movement of arising and passing uh, in the Theravada map, this is the fourth stage, and uh, it's a stage that is accompanied by very high concentration. And that wherever you turn your attention, you can see very clearly the arising and passing. One of the ways that we, uh, in the untrained mind, are able to create this perception of ongoing self and world uh, is that we only notice the arising. So each time the sensing activity arises, we focus on that. And then rather than watching it uh, peak and then uh, fall away, we jump to the next arising, to the next arising. And if there aren't sufficient arisings, we jump to awareness to act as a bridge that carries us from arising to arising to arising. And in this manner of perceiving things, you can create this sense of solid world, solid self, ongoing, unending. And so as we move into this fourth stage of practice where we're looking at these arisings and passings, we pay attention to the ending of it. Noticing the arising, the middle of the end, the arising, the middle of the end. And in paying attention in that way, we see clearly the, or it's illustrated clearly for us, the nature of this arising and passing. In uh, Christian, 
I'm wondering when you're when you're tracking, say, the the passing or or any of the phases, are you actually aware of sort of where you are in the timeline of that sensation or feeling at the time, or do you kind of just realize that like? Can you really realize that something is passing while it's passing, or do you only realize that it has passed? Um, the, the way that Shinzen formulated the meditation was to note gone at the moment that it ends. So a, a significant drop off or an ending of a sensation uh, is to, denoted as a gone moment. So yes, you do begin to see these waves of arising and passing with a clear ending. And you focus on them. Um, when you move into the fourth stage, really what you're focusing on mainly is the, the endings or the goons. And so you, you um, because you're already conditioned to notice the arising, you just really focus, focus your attention mainly on the endings, on the goons, one after another. The technique is called just don't go on, um, which you can do. Um, Tonight, what I was thinking that we would do instead was uh, flow and add that to the mix of see, hear, feel. Uh, if you notice that there's flowing energy, there's always a bias toward focusing on it. Um, so something will drop off significantly or end, and that's that's a gone. And it, it's happening all of the time in all of the different sense gates. So if you imagine the last sense, sentence that I just said, after each discrete word, there was a, a moment of God when the vibration ended before the next one arose. And you were able to detect the ending of each word as well as the beginning of each word in order to understand what I'm saying. So it's a very ordinary thing. Um, one way to do it, of course, is to uh, pay attention to an arising and then uh, restrict your uh, ability to move off the object until you follow the arising and passing of it. And then as it ends, don't go on so that you begin in this slow way of, of tracking that. And you'll notice in the, in the nature of arising and passing, there's a few different ways that it happens. Um, most of the time, it's a kind of prosaic uh, that what I mean is ordinary rhythm of arising and passing, arising and passing. And you may begin to notice as you do the practice that there, there can be a pulsing energy of arising and passing and that there that can happen at different speeds. Um, but it can get so rapid that you're unable to note it and label it at the same time. So you give up on the labeling and just and note it directly as it pulses on and off, on and off. And uh, when that kind of uh, flowing energy gets really powerful in the body, it's as if the whole experience of self and world is pulsing and arising and passing in, in that way. Is that making sense? In the fourth stage, they talk about an experience of an arising and passing event, which is some clear uh, ind indication that uh, uh, that you uh, know this activity of arising and passing, and 
And in the, the Mahasi commentary, he talks about it as a, a white light, a casino that opens up almost like a spotlight. Um, when, it, when I first had the experience of it, I was reminded of those uh, gangster films um, from my childhood. Um, I recognize that I'm quite a bit older and, and that uh, the nature of gangster films has changed quite a bit since then. But in these uh, black and white movies that were made in the, the 30s and the 40s, the, the gangsters all wore you know, suits and fedoras and the police detectives also wore them ties and they would sit the, the, the uh, um, suspect in a chair and then they would turn the desk lamp up, which would have kind of a gooseneck thing with a shade on a bulb, and then you have that direct bulb, um, that bare bulb of white light blazing in your face. And that, that had that sense of it. I, I talk about it uh, because it was such an unusual experience and I was completely unprepared for it because Shinzen at the time was teaching a kind of secular mindfulness. And so, uh, there was no conversation about these different stages that you might end up in. And uh, it had seemed to me that um, somebody had driven their car and parked it uh, across from me where I was sitting in the meditation hall and had left the headlights on. Even though I knew that it was impossible to drive a car there, I had this idea that that's must must be what had happened and I became quite outraged by the, the uh, moral failings of the person who drove the car and then left their headlights on. So I opened my eyes and of course there was nothing there and the, the room was a, in a, almost a twilight uh, state of light. And so I closed my eyes and then as the concentration returned the, the bright white uh, casino appeared. And in that moment, wherever I turned my attention, the arising and passing was absolutely vividly clear and rapid. And it didn't matter how fast it was going because the mind was capable of taking it in. And as that continued, the um, sense of the fluidity of, of experience began to give way and it became quite staccato. Um, Everything has gone digital now, but in the old days and um, using a, another movie uh, idea, sometimes you'd go to the theater and the, the film would break and then you would see the succession of the flowing moving image becoming these choppy cells of still images before it turned white. And uh, that's kind of how it was, the fluidity of, of that constant sense of motion became quite staccato -y. And that's called an arising and passing point where you see through um, the matrix, if we can use yet another film uh, analogy, the nature of that sensing experience and the way that we, we create conceptual reality from it. And it produces that sense of the solid world out there that's flowing in this continuous way and appears to be solid. The reaction often from, from that happening can be uh, fearfulness. And so uh, what you'll notice sometimes when you get into that stage of, of insight that 
uh, as those um, experiences begin to happen to you and you 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 notice that it it makes you quite fearful and that fearfulness shuts it down and brings everything back into that uh, ordinary sense of solidness and so you have to acclimatize to the experience of this as the arising and passing uh, takes over the whole sensing experience you move into what's called dissolution which is where the capacity to sense the edges of the body disappears into this flowing energy, the capacity to differentiate between the individual sense gates of see, hear, feel uh, dissolves, and you're simply this uh, flowing, unfixated sensing experience. And then that can go on for various uh, periods of time also it can be easily shut down by fearfulness arising in reaction to it. It is an ordinary state that happens over and over again. So you tend to cycle through it. Um, if you like this uh, particular map that the Theravada insight path is based on, uh, then you simply get used to where you are on the map and, uh, and know what techniques to apply to it so that you can begin to move uh, through these and do a cycle of the whole map over and over again. Recognizing these um, uh, experiences as you, as you repeat them and, and cycling through this becomes more and more obvious and so less and less frightening. And so you can move into uh, more complete dissolution states. You often, or I do anyway, talk to people who have um, gotten partway through, but not all the way through because the fearfulness came and shut it down. I'd like to describe this as a, as a way of practicing so you have a sense of the ordinariness of it. One of the things that's important to understand about the nature of practice is that you tend to have the kinds of insights that the, the practice that you're doing tends to cause to arise. And so if you practice closely uh, with this particular map then, uh, and do the techniques that are necessary to have the insights that are described in it, then you tend to move along the map in, in the way that it's described. If you look at the monastic texts um, and uh, the way that uh, Mahasi writes, it's very emphatic and, and very um, rigid in terms of how the experiences tend to uh, unfold, but I notice that in my own practice that they unfold uh, in different ways. There's depending on uh, how I'm moving through the cycle, different emphases, different emphases. Sometimes more than one stage is present. You're moving back and forth uh, through stages. Um, the dissolution experience then be becomes not unpleasant, but uh, pleasant and welcome because it's familiar and it doesn't frighten you. And, and you can enjoy the, the change in the experience of being that is illustrated by it. And you have more agency in, in being able to be um, come in and out of it. At the end of the uh, dissolution stage, is the knowledge of the miseries is the Buddhist term for it. It's often discussed um, with the Christian 
terminology, which is the, the dark night of the soul. We don't really have a soul in, in Buddhist thought and uh, the miseries are around the same three characteristics that you've already examined. The fearfulness that there is no self-experience that's ongoing. Um, the misery that nothing lasts and you can't count anything. You're going to lose everything. Now, maybe you know the five remembrances. I'm of a nature to grow old. There's nothing I can do to prevent aging. I'm of a nature to grow sick. There's nothing you can do to prevent becoming ill. I'm of a nature to die. There's nothing you can do to prevent death. Everything I have and everyone I love is of the nature to change. There's nothing I can do to prevent losing them. My only two possessions are my actions. There's no way to escape the consequences of my actions. And then the last is the disgust that you're trapped in a human body that's going to age and that that beautiful, youthful, vibrant, energetic container that you start life with doesn't last either. <laughs> Um, I like to um, relate to that with humor because the uh, the decrepitude as it creeps up is hilarious. <laughs> That's why this article in the paper this morning was so enjoyable because uh, it's so easy to convince yourself that you're you're basically unblemished and unchanged by a whole lifetime of experience and. And yet these researchers were demonstrating how completely different uh, older people think than, than their younger selves might have thought. So the idea is to be, um, to understand that this is a description and that different practices provide a different maps. So the, the uh, Tibetan map is completely different from this. The Zen map is completely different from this. Um, one of the things actually in retrospect about setting the Shinzen is that he, he, he has a fusion of these three different uh, maps and it's all secularized. So it's hard to tell from the languages he uses what tradition he's drawn the particular teaching out of. I study with uh, Dan Brown, who's in the Rime lineage of Tibetan Buddhism, which is part of the Bon uh, lineage. And uh, Dan, when I first started studying with him, described it as the greatest hits of Tibetan Buddhism in that uh, they plucked from each of the different uh, five traditions, the practices that they thought were the most successful in illustrating the stages of the development of, of their path. And so you weren't confined to a single lineage. You, you had this kind of mashup of all of the, the five uh, Tibetan lineages, which actually was very appealing to me having spent so long studying with Shinzen where that had happened, even though it hadn't been so clearly explained. Um, all roads lead to uh, Rome. All roads lead to enlightenment. And really what we're talking about here is 
picking up uh, and practicing in a way that really resonates with you so that you'll continue practicing and carry yourself along uh, to uh, this end place. In uh, the Tibetan practices, you have a taste of awakening and then the journey is to stabilize that awakening until it's continuous. In the Theravada map, you have stream entry and then you develop the, the, uh, the, first state, the first stage or the first taste of enlightenment until it's a, a, a stable thing. And in Zen, you, you walk through the mist of uh, awakening until you're drenched uh, in the same way that you would if you plunged into the, the experience of cessation in the Theravada map. So we're going to come to practice and, and identify ways of practicing that really make sense to you so that you can engage them, knowing that what we're trying to come into is this place of deeply integrating the understanding of the nature of the way that uh, we experience uh, self and world. That we take in this sensing data through the capacities that we have, that mind is very selective on what it focuses on. So based on our um, the hierarchies of meaning that we find in experiences, we collect these mind moments out of the full range of, of possibilities that are there. We take this very limited sampling of what's there and we create based on our conditioning and our imagination, a version of that that's conceptual, that conceptual reality and that we project that out and form the world around us and the perception of the people that are in our lives and that it's coming from that process of taking in the raw data, fixating it and projecting it back out, which is very different than the, the way that the Western mind is conditioned to understand these things. Going back to ancient Greece and the, the philosophers there, understanding that their idea of this was that we look out and we take in representations of what's out there and that they're uh, accurate representations that we're taking in. It's a very different way of looking at this. And so one of the things that's uh, important for Western practice Practitioners is to understand that you've been conditioned, you've been taught how to see the construction of the world, you've been taught how to see the construction of yourself and the other people in your life. And in, in Buddhism, uh, we're thinking that it's different than that, that you have to train your way into seeing it. Um, uh, as far as I can tell, the way that it actually is, whereas the, the, the standard Western idea is not actually, actually a good model for it. At least in the way I experience things, I'm aware that I can create the sense of the world around me in, in, a, in a variety of ways, uh, many of which are completely inaccurate as to what's actually happening there. An example would be uh, getting an email from somebody and reading it and getting an immediately strong emotional response to the content of the email and having uh, trained myself not to immediately respond to it because 
I'm recognizing that the emotional intensity of the reaction to it has distorted my capacity to see clearly what's actually there and waiting until the emotional storm has settled so that I can come back to it and re-examine what it is and uh, attempt to understand why it, it created such reactivity and then what might be an appropriate response, which is often different than the, the intensity of the feeling that was the initial reaction to it. But uh, while that's very discreet, the, this thing, that kind of process is happening over and over again uh, as we move through the day. And so trying to come into this place of balance and then allowing the, the reactivity that's still present in you not worked out um, so that you can maintain this perfect equanimity uh, and then uh, become skillful in this habit of uh, needing to have that clarity of mind so that the intention can be clean and ethical and that the action that you take can be clean and ethical so that the karmic traces that you create are also um, skillful and that you can move into this virtuous cycle of being so in the meditation that we're going to do, we're going to do a, a repeat of the basic see, hear, feel, focus in, focus out, focus rest. The reason that the rest aspect is important is that sometimes your attention can be drawn to a sense gate that is inactive. So we want to have space for that. But most of the time when that happens to me, it's internal visual thinking, but there's no activation of internal visual thinking. It's just an awareness of the space. This allows us to, to move from identifying with the content of activations to an awareness of the space and whether or not the space is active. The focus in, focus out creates that, that differentiating, differentiated experience of self and world. And then we want to begin to pay attention to the nature of flow experiences or impermanent experiences. Uh, in the, the canon and also in descriptions of jhana practice, uh, you'll notice uh, if you look into it that they tend to describe um, this flow energy, this PT is the Pali word for it, in five levels of intensity, the first of which is just a very subtle uh, vibratory, maybe goose flesh type vibratory activity somewhere in the body. And so as you, you sit in the meditation practice, um, pay attention to that. And if you notice it, then begin to switch your attention to it. There's always a, a bias in practice of switching to the flow states because you want to be really uh, have some agency in moving from fixated to flowing back and forth effortlessly. The second stage is a kind of jolting energy that flows through the body so that it almost causes the body to jerk as it flows through. The, th the third level is this uh, uh, 
suffusing energy that, that flows. So the whole, whole body becomes energized by this. So the fourth stage is this uplifting energy. Um, this is one of those um, things until I went to Asia, really didn't know what um, they were talking about. And it seemed like a metaphor or, or a description of the metaphysical, which was for me a little bit harder since I've been so inured to the uh, science as miracle paradigm. Um, and I even explain it to myself in terms of that is, is that the flow state hits the proprioceptive system, um, which is how we know how the body is positioned. And if that begins to flow quite a bit, then the body's trying to rebalance itself based on that. But th that it was not so unusual for people to literally lift off the cushion. So they're, they're, uh, if they were kneeling, which is a common posture there, um, their uh, legs and feet would be on the ground, but the, the rest of the body would lift up and float above the floor in front of them in a, in a posture that uh, we um, tried to duplicate consciously, but couldn't uh, find balance to hold. And they would hover a few inches off the floor, their face a few inches off the floor in this um, forward posture that, and, and, and be there for 20 minutes or 30 minutes, uh, which seemed quite uh, impossible. That's that intensity of energy. And, and when uh, I quizzed some of them uh, afterwards, they, they said that, that it just felt that they were floating rather than having extended forward, which that was surprising. And then the fifth one is this energy that completely dissolves the, the barrier between uh, sense gates and also the, the inside and outside so that you, you are you are no longer able to detect the body. But in the beginning, when you're sensitizing yourself to uh, flow or uh, PT, you're looking just for this, this little bit of vibratory energy. And if that happens, switch to that. You can begin to denote it as see flow, hear flow, or feel flow. See flow, the visual field would break up into colored dots. The internal experience is a little easier where the imagery is just flowing and morphing continuously. In auditory, you no longer fixate the soundscape and it just becomes pure vibratory energy without the mind making it into something. So just sound, no words, no uh, identifying activity. And then in the body, there's this flow of energy that begins to become so intense that the body itself dissolves. Is that pretty clear in terms of what this evening's practice is gonna be? Any questions before we begin? So any comments or questions about what we did this evening? Christian? Uh, I'm wondering about um, the visual uh, see, in, uh, see in and see out rest. Um, is there a rest for both of those? Because I, 
for a while I was just kind of like looking at the blank screen and it's not like sometimes I'll get little blobbies dancing but there was just nothing there and so I I thought that that was C outrest but I wasn't sure if it was C outrest or C inrest. I would say that's C inrest. C outrest would be more an awareness of like the eyelids with no activity because they're closed. So that would be C outrest. Um, or if you were in a room that was dark and it was hard to see anything, then you might notice the see out rest. Um, the visual activity when the eyes are open, if there's light in the space, is usually pretty active. Um, see and rest. Uh, the uh, mental screen is often the place where I notice it, whereas the other aspects of see and rest, see in are, are usually active. Okay. Arthur. Um, I noticed that it's uh, very rarely, I actually can't tell when there's a rest because usually if I'm, you know, in sight space, then uh, the, another, another space will just pop in instead. So I go to sound and then it will go to uh, sensation. So it's very uh, little of actual, like any of them resting. Right. Um, and my sense is because it, uh, the other ones like captures my attention, it takes over. So I'm only, so um, I guess, how do you stay with the rest part of it? I would intentionally direct, excuse me, I wouldn't intentionally direct that choice. Just have it in mind in case you arrive there. Um, it, in shorts, it's like this, uh, there, there tends to be much more activation, but if you sit longer, say on a retreat where you're sitting for hours a day, then uh, uh, very gradually you, you tend to get into more and more periods of restful states until you can actually get into a place where it's just all rest. Um, so no visual activity, the body is completely relaxed. It doesn't really react too much. Um, and then it's quiet, so there's no activation. And then the internal auditory thinking shuts down. And so you're just in a sort of a, an equanimous space with no activations, but awareness is still there. Uh, all rest states are, is possible. Um, really just having that as part of the, 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 the thing to note if you, if you end up there is better than trying to direct toward it, I would say. You don't want to interflow, you don't want to interfere with the movement of um, the mind from object to object. You want to be able to observe that more. Um, if you had, if you couldn't identify a rest state, then you might do a, a, a short uh, period of, uh, with a restricted uh, meditation where you were just focusing on that to learn the space. But once you uh, know what the experience is, I would just go back to the uh, freely moving. Good enough. Someone else? Okay. So it is the middle of November. Uh, we have a uh, day long for the Dharma maps coming up. We talked about that a lot uh, tonight anyway. 
but this will be a, a day of practice really mostly focusing on the different stages and the different techniques that you use on them. Um, might even be next Saturday, let me look. So yeah, Saturday the 21st, uh, this Saturday is the 14th, so it's the 21st, so not, not this week, um, <clears throat> not coming. December 3rd, we're starting a level two class. So if you're interested in the meditation and attachment material, there's some spaces there left. We have some scholarship funds for that. So um, take a look at it and see if you wanna do it. Uh, and then give us a, a shout at the office and we can set it up for you. Um, if you haven't done level one and you still are interested in doing the, the course, we can give you the recordings for level one so that you can go through them before it starts. We have uh, a weekend retreat um, in conjunction with the Recovery Dharma Collective. I'm going to do the meditation and attachment for addiction over uh, a day and a half, so uh, all day Saturday and half of a day on Sunday. That uh, training is divided up into four modules, working with craving and urging, working with uh, uh, stress, anger, and depression, working with persistent negative emotions and working with difficult interpersonal relationships. So we think that the underlying cause of addiction is a meditation, uh, an attachment disturbance. And so uh, that course is reflective of that. And it, it gives you a full range of um, um, that perspective. And it's equivalent to level one. Uh, so if you wanted to do that, you could do that. The, uh, level two classes starting before that. So um, I wouldn't let that inhibit you, but if you have addiction issues, it's a, it's a wonderful approach to that. We have a retreat coming up uh, December 28th through January 2nd. Uh, it's a virtual retreat, so you can do it from anywhere. And uh, that's also about half full. The level two class is restricted to 12 and the, the retreat is restricted to 24. So if you're interested in doing that, uh, sign up sooner than later, because we really will uh, close them, close them uh, just because of the logistics of it. There's also some uh, scholarship money available for the retreat. I offer this class on a Donna basis. Donna is the Pali word for generosity, which means I offer the teaching freely. And then I hope that you'll uh, donate uh, to help support me and also to help support the work that Metagroup is doing. Any amount is appreciated, and uh, if you're not resourced at this time, uh, that's totally fine. Please come uh, to the classes and the community will support you. There's a link for donations uh, on the website and also in the email you may have gotten about the class. Thank you for coming and we will see you next time. Bye now. Thanks, George. Thanks, Harley. Bye. Yeah.